Hello again, and welcome to the Utah Film Pod. My name is Josh Terry, and once again, I will be flying solo for episode number eight. Danny Hatch, my fearless podcaster partner, is still hard at work on her student film up at Weber State University, so hopefully it won't be too much longer before we get to hear back from her. Looking forward to that. And in the meantime, it's early November, so we just finished up the Halloween season. Uh, Releases are starting to pick up. We're not quite into the holiday release uh, phase yet, but we did just get a few Halloween horror-related releases, and so I wanted to touch on a couple of movies. If you've been following along on the utah.film website, uh, I posted a kind of a tandem review for two movies that I just saw over the last few weeks. Uh, The first of them uh, I would definitely not recommend. Uh, The second I would. And I think that kind of comparing the two of them together, now you may have already read about this, is kind of an interesting way to, to approach the, the horror genre. Um, of course, the movie that I'm not very high on is uh, Halloween Kills, which is the sequel to the Halloween, I guess, you could kind of call it a reboot, kind of call it a sequel, kind of call it another slasher movie where there's lots of wanton violence and gratuitous gore. Um, so obviously I was not very big on the, the 2018 uh, version of Halloween. Uh, which I guess was intended to be a direct sequel to the original uh, film from 1978. Halloween Kills, of course, uh, three years later, is supposed to pick up the very night of uh, the previous movie and continue that story. And honestly, one of the only things that was kind of attracting me to it in the first place was the idea that I'd heard that the plot this time around was that uh, the the people in the town were going to team up and were going to hunt down Michael Myers. And so they're going to try to turn the tables on the boogeyman. And that to me sounded kind of interesting. Sadly, that plot didn't really deliver a whole lot. Uh, Halloween Kills really is just kind of another run through uh, innocent victims uh, by way of Michael Myers' blade or whatever happens to be around. And uh, yeah, um, so that's that was kind of one Halloween option. And uh, the other one is one that I would more strongly consider um, if not recommend 100%, but Last Night in Soho is the latest movie from Edgar Wright, uh, who you may know as the director of movies like Baby Driver, uh, Shaun of the Dead, Hot Fuzz, uh, Scott Pilgrim vs. the World, lots of, well, comedies, and and really kind of fun, over-the-top, zany little movies. And his energetic, frenetic editing style uh, is really a signature piece and something that makes his movies a lot of fun. There's always, you know, fantastic soundtracks. If, if you, if you saw or heard about baby driver, uh, you probably knew that he really went out of his way to not just find music that was fun and, and, and cool to put on the soundtrack, but he actually punctuated, uh, the movie in its, in its beats to the music in a way that that really doesn't happen, uh, very often, if at all. Now, last night in Soho, also has a fantastic soundtrack and also has his his signature style, but it is not a comedy at all. Uh, it's more of a psychological thriller, and so it's not really a traditional horror movie uh, in, in the sense you might think. Uh, but it is very, very intense and very scary uh, in, in spots. Uh, maybe maybe more disturbing than scary would be the best way to... I mean, because it's, it's more about the atmosphere and the tone and the vibe, and it... Uh, I don't know. I, I found it to be much more engaging and interesting. Um, of course, I've, I've been a fan of Edgar Wright for quite a while. 
And so I was excited to see what he would do with a genre that's a little bit outside of his normal wheelhouse. Now, um, this story is it's set in London, uh, in, in kind of present-day London, and it follows a young aspiring fashion designer. And she has arrived to fashion school with hopes and dreams of, you know, kind of fulfilling this uh, kind of obsession she has. She's she's very uh, stuck in the 60s. She loves the swinging 60s of, of London, uh, you know, with, with the kinks and the Rolling Stones and, and the Beatles and, and not just bands, but just the kind of the fashion and, and all that kind of stuff and all the iconography. And so she wants to go to fashion school and kind of put that into play. Now, for that reason, much of the soundtrack is is kind of revolving around this 1960s uh, vibe. But what happens after she starts school is she starts going to sleep and having dreams where she is kind of this, this young ingenue who is back living in the mid-1960s. And she is kind of living out the dream of being the next, you know, Scylla Black or Dusty Springfield or just kind of a, a solo singing starlet. And as these dreams progress and as the movie moves along, the division between the dreams and the reality gets very, very muddled. And, and eventually, you know, we, we realize that there's more of a connection between what is happening than it just kind of the innocent uh, aspirational dreams of this young woman, uh, especially because these dreams start off as very, very wistful and idealistic, but then go bad. Now, I don't want to get into a whole lot more about that because I just, you know, I am recommending it is, a, is something I think that you'd like to see for yourself. So the film has a great cast and Eloise, who is the fashion student, is played by Thomas and McKenzie, uh, who you might remember from Jojo Rabbit from a couple of years ago. And her dream alter ego, the aspiring singer, uh, Sandy is the character, and is played by Anya Taylor-Joy, who you might know from The Witch and uh, some of M. Night Shyamalan's recent movies. Uh, these two, I, I really love the work that they've been doing in recent movies and look forward to seeing what they do from here. And they just have this really interesting dynamic because in a lot of the scenes, the dream sequences in particular, they kind of have to play off of each other uh, is almost and sometimes literally kind of a mirror image of, of one another. Now, the movie is pretty dark. Um, it's an R-rated movie, mostly for language, I would say. Uh, now, there's there's definitely uh, an element of sexual content because without giving too much away, uh, basically one of the reasons that these these dreams uh, go go bad is because. One of the themes that emerges from this movie is is kind of the Me Too concept, and specifically as it applies to, you know, a young woman goes to a big city, wants to be a singer, and falls in with the wrong people, and winds up in a totally different situation where she's being sexually exploited. And so, so that is a theme. It's never really, uh, it's never gratuitous or, or or graphic or explicit or anything in that degree, but it's definitely uh, a part of the of the of the plot and the narrative. And so towards the end of the movie, there's also some violence that, that definitely gets into the R-rated category, except, you know, certainly nothing of the uh, Halloween kills sort. So overall, as a change of pace for Edgar Wright, I really, I really enjoyed a lot about this movie. Um, it's very engaging. It's really interesting. And like I said, I mean, even some of the, the less, you know, less critical aspects like the soundtrack and things like that are, are a lot of fun. Uh, the performances are fantastic. Um, 
So if you like horror movies and you were looking for something uh, that wasn't just kind of about gratuitous gore and violence and had a little bit more of a psychological edge to it, uh, but we're still okay with some of the, the R-rated content, uh, Last Night in Soho is definitely something that uh, I, I found very engaging, um, very, very interesting. The the story itself has is kind of open to interpretation at the end. In the meantime, I would I would definitely recommend it for horror fans who are looking for something uh, a little more thoughtful than Halloween Kills. The big recent release that we can talk about is Eternals, the latest installment from the MCU, uh, even though it doesn't really feel like it. Uh, you know, spoiler alert there. Uh, Eternals is the, the latest of the, the superhero genre that... If you've listened to any of the other previous episodes, you know I'm, I'm getting a little bit uh, weary of, but uh, I tried to, you know, I mean, I still try to go into these movies with an open mind, and, and I will say that Eternals has a much more interesting and engaging plot than Venom, Let There Be Carnage, although that's not really saying a whole lot. Uh, Eternals is, is a story of a, a group of these immortal, super-powered beings uh, that were created by another group of kind of super beings called celestials uh they created the eternals to defend the earth uh from a group of kind of evil evil beings called the deviants and and so the eternals have been around for thousands of years uh they have you know uh kind of their own individual superpowers um and because they've been around so long they kind of have informed the the myths and legends of the earth as you see from like you know one of the characters is named icarus and so he's obviously a reference to you know the character from mythology It's directed by chloe Zhao, who you might remember from directing nomadland uh, last year and uh, that has a pretty big impact on you know the the takeaway from this film which i'll get to in a second now i can definitely say that there are some good things happening in this movie and and you know it's it's got a very nice cast um some of the various heroes are played by uh, Gemma Chan, Angelina Jolie, Salma Hayek, um, various you know people that you recognize. Some of them you wouldn't really recognize. I had a tough time with this one. Um, aside from, like I said, aside from just kind of having some general superhero fatigue, um, Eternals didn't do a whole lot to get me excited about superhero movies again. Um, there's a few different factors here that that I think kind of hamper the movie. Um, and I might as well just say that the first one, I believe, is is a result of a director who had a fantastic touch and a fantastic vibe and tone and and kind of bleak, uh, bleak but beautiful landscape usage in in Nomadland. That same tone and and vibe is applied to Eternals, and it just doesn't ever really work for me. Um, you can say that you know the visuals are are pretty, but it doesn't seem to fit very well for an action movie. And and I think that, you know, I mean this this movie is pushing three hours long, and it well you know a little over two and a half. It feels long, right? What I was kind of thinking was this this kind of feels like a a much more boring version of the Avengers, where you kind of have this group of of super powered individuals who come together to defend the Earth and. And I don't know. I mean, I wouldn't. I wouldn't say that this couldn't work, but you know, it's it's a really great example of how the original MCU plan 
was such a great idea because by the time we saw that first Avengers movie, we had, you know, half dozen individual characters, most of whom had had their own movies at that point. And so we had time to get to know them, to become familiar with who they were and their backgrounds. They were very clearly delineated. You know, their characters were well-developed. They had their background stories that we'd already spent time with them. And so when they came together, that was kind of a big deal. Um, with Eternals, it's kind of a, you know, it's an ensemble cast and you don't necessarily have to have a movie for each character going in. But in this case, the characters are very hard to distinguish. Um, even, even their powers sometimes seem to kind of just be kind of arbitrary and hard to, you know, really separate, uh, the plot itself basically, you know, catches up with them after the thousands of years of, of, you know, defending the earth. Uh, they're now living among us, you know, in plain sight. Um, but one of them, the character turned, uh, played by Selma Hayek, turns up dead. And so they realize, oh, the deviants are back. And so uh, they take up the charge once again and get the band back together and uh, in the process find out that their role uh, might not be exactly what they thought it was. Um, that's the basic idea, the basic premise, which has potential. I mean, it sounds kind of interesting. And there's there's definitely some some good elements here. But the execution, uh, the characterization, the pacing, it just falls flat. And, and for somebody who, you know, maybe like me, is, is just not really seeing the, the use for a lot of these continued superhero movies uh, and, and continued expansion of, of the MCU, frankly, it's just not fun. And, and that is something that, you know, it's, it's not that every superhero movie has to be funny or, or, or crazy or zany, but honestly, they should be fun. And Eternals is not fun. Okay, well, now that I've already gotten done crapping all over another superhero movie, let's change our pace a little bit here on the Utah Film Pod. I actually have a very special guest this, uh, this episode. Um, this is an old friend of mine. I've known him for years and years. And he also holds the distinction of being my very first editor. Now, I don't know how much of my, my past I've gone over on this podcast, but my first official experience as a film critic um, was during grad school up at Utah State University in Logan, writing for The Statesman. Now, my first year there, I was only a humor columnist, but the second year I decided to start writing film reviews, and I started reporting to a guy named Mark LaRocco. And Mark LaRocco is here with us today. Mark, welcome to the Utah Film Pod. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. <laughs> That's right. Now, now, aside from being my, my editor, now, if you looked around this guy's basement and, and around his office, you would think that he was the one who has his own podcast, his own movie podcast, because, because Mark is every bit the movie fan I am, if not more so. Um, wouldn't, wouldn't you agree, Mark? Wouldn't you say... Yeah, I'd say it's a, it's, it's a passion for me. I'm, I'm a cinephile, I'll admit it. Yeah. So yeah. See, I wouldn't even think of the term cinephile, and so just by virtue of the fact that you're using that word, <laughs> I think that alone qualifies you to join the the illustrious Utah Film Pod. Um, no. So where so where did this interest come from? What what uh, I mean, presumably you've been listening to or been watching movies all your life. Yeah. What? Uh, um, give me give me some of the early memories. What what got you into these things? Well, I I remember going to movies at a very early age, uh, at about. Uh, seven. I, I remember going to several movies at around that seven, eight year stretch in the movie theater with my parents, and they had a huge effect on me. Um, I saw a movie at a, that was 
a very very famous action movie at too young of an age that gave me nightmares that I grew to love <laughs> later, called Raiders of the Lost Ark. Ah. Um, and you know, and I think some of the movies that had a, an effect on me that we'll probably talk about a little bit later are ones that just. I, you know, I never forget, I never forget the way I felt the first time I saw that movie or even a particular scene in a movie. And sometimes it's just burned into my brain, you know, like mm -hmm. a, a certain song that went along with a scene in a movie or a certain line uh, that a character spoke. And, and also I just like, I, I, I'm a big fan of Roger Ebert, the, the movie yeah. critic who died about right. eight years ago. And I've, I've met him and I've read lots of his books. He says that movies are empathy machines. They're great empathy, empathy oh, nice. machines. And he kind of has this, this saying that they, you know, if, if you tell me opera or books or, you know, sculpture, like these are all arts that are superior to movies. He'll say, well, movies envelop all of these things. Movies have everything. Every form of art you could imagine can exist within a movie. And, and so, yeah, I think it's, to me, it's the ultimate art form and it's, uh, a way to transport you to another world, to, to think of another, to, to be in the shoes of another character that you might not otherwise stand in. I love that you referenced Raiders of the Lost Ark because not only is that one of my all time, if not my number one favorite action movie, I also had the traumatic childhood experience <laughs> where, <laughs> because I, I have very distinct memories of seeing the movie in the theater as a kid and my parents instructing me to like hide my eyes. And I think I even like turned around and faced the back of the seat during the face melting scene at oh. the end, like the, in the climax, like that was the one thing that like, I, I think I've watched everything else, you know, like all the spiders and, and stuff like that earlier on. But, but it was the, you know, when they finally open up the arc and, and everything goes crazy, that was, that was the scene that was, was a little too much for uh, what about five, six year old Josh. It's true. I, I totally agree. That movie came out in 1981. I think I saw that one I did not see in the theater, but I saw it, I believe, at my grandma's house maybe in 1982 when I would have been about five. Okay. And it actually wasn't the melting face melting scene that got me. And by the way, I love that you described how you had to turn your your head away from the scene because that's what happens in the movie with oh, yeah, two main characters. Right. <laughs> they have to keep their eyes closed in order to stay I alive. did not even think of that. I and did not even I think, think of that's that. beautiful. That's so it's perfect. <laughs> but like, um, I, it, for me, it was the snakes crawling through the skulls, like through the orbital cavity oh, yeah. in the mouth. Yeah, and that's right. I actually had a very extremely realistic nightmare of the snakes, of the skulls, like on my wall of my bedroom and the snakes crawling in and out of it. It was one of those like oh, wow. realistic nightmares. <laughs> and so that movie scared the the crap out of me but later i grew to love it i've seen it a lot of times it's probably the best yeah all around best action movie ever um yeah it's right up there i mean the, the, okay, so... the new mission impossible movies are pretty amazing i really like the fugitive from from 93 oh yeah yeah um yeah no those are those are all up there and yet for for just the the balance and the and the the different qualities that come together i still i think i still put raiders up at, at number one now now i don't want to get you in trouble but since i know that you're a parent do you like has, has being a movie fan and and kind of looking at your own experience has that made you more or less likely to show your kids certain movies as they've been growing up oh that's so funny that you say that i just had that experience tonight 
Oh, um, no. <laughs> we, I was showing the boys because they went to a family, like a family reunion, and they watched Guardians of the Galaxy, which I hadn't, okay. I wasn't really quite ready to show them, but uh, they loved it. They, they had fun. And so tonight we were trying to debate whether to watch uh, Rogue One or Never Ending okay. Story, and they couldn't agree. So we put on Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2. Oh. And uh, my wife came home, and the the main, you know, the guardians, they keep talking about inappropriate things. It's not just once or twice. It happens like ten times in the first hour. And she kind of said, oh, great movie for kids. And so that was sort of my hint to turn it off and play a PG-rated movie. So I've tried really hard with them. I mean, I've been very careful. Even on Disney uh, Plus, there's a lot of PG-13 movies yeah. that we don't watch. but. We've, right. we've watched a few. We've watched the Star Wars and a couple of the Marvel movies. But, I mean, my oldest is nine. So, you know, okay. we're not quite there yet on, on certain movies I think that they'd love. In fact, just tonight they asked to watch Jurassic Park, which they've asked a lot of times. And the answer was still no. You know, yeah. I think it's too scary for them. No, and that's, I mean, because it's one of those things where, you know, and of course I, I don't have kids myself, but I have lots of nieces. And so there's... You know, when you are watching a movie through the eyes of a child, you you notice a lot of different things and you realize that, oh, my goodness, you know, this is I, I didn't even give this a second thought. But now that I'm sitting here with this eight year old watching it as well. Oh, wow. Maybe maybe this isn't <laughs> maybe maybe those double entendres, you know, or or, or stuff is uh, you, you kind of realize that. Cause, yeah, because I mean, because Guardians, too, I remember volume two definitely had a little bit more. Oh yeah, uh, it, it was just just the humor, they're, you know, they're... and it, and it's all it's all dialogue, right? You know? It's but all it's dialogue. Like, oh, do these kids understand what these people are talking about? You yeah. Know, so I mean, they're violent. They're like you know Marvel violent, but they're <laughs> yeah, right, you know, right. There's a lot of Which dialogue is... that goes pretty far in the second one, and uh, so yeah, it was it was a little bit too much, but anyway, it's oh, funny you say funny. that. Like yeah, the kid movies. Um, Ebert wrote a great review of E.T. that was written as almost like a letter to children and how they would appreciate the movies. Yeah. The, the movie, yeah. like to his, I think it was his, maybe it was his nieces and nephews or children he was related to, but it was a, it was a really cool review that was like written for kids to, that, so that, you know, mm -hmm. how kids would understand and appreciate that movie. You know that that doesn't surprise me at all because and and this is this is something I remember. So for the audience's benefit, after we worked together at Utah State, uh, we kind of parted ways for a few years and then reconnected um, uh, a few years later. And actually, we ended up becoming roommates for what like a year and a half, almost two years. That's right. And uh, and during which time, this is kind of when I learned about your appreciation of Roger Ebert because you had all of his books and would talk about his, you know the movies and stuff and. And, uh, I, you know, just between growing up and watching, you know, sneak previews and, the you know, Ebert and, and Siskel and Ebert on TV, I had all, already kind of, you know, developed my own appreciation for him. And, and in fact, one of his most memorable reviews, uh, now we're close enough to Halloween that I think we can talk about a, a little bit of horror related stuff. He, he wrote a review for the original Night of the Living Dead. The, the the George Romero movie the black and white from 1968 yeah and and I don't do you, do you remember ever reading that review does that I I don't remember it particularly but it is it, it's a it's a must read it really is especially as some you know as somebody that appreciates you know Ebert because 
he writes it. Now, I don't think it's actually directed to kids, but instead of just writing a straight review for the movie, he actually recounts the experience he had going to see it because he went to some kind of a theater that was showing it basically as like a Saturday afternoon, you know, matinee feature type thing for kids because they thought that it was kind of one of these kind of hokey, innocent, you know, 1960s drive-in movies with, you know, a guy in a rubber suit, you know, that this kind of, that kind of early horror that, you know, you could send the kids off to on a Saturday afternoon. And as anybody who's watched Night of the Living Dead knows, the movie kind of starts that way, but then gets very, very intense and and very you know even kind of graphic and shocking especially for that that point in time and and so ebert's review is kind of this this stunned recounting just like the experience of being in this theater with all these kids who just were not prepared at all for effectively what you know was kind of this bridge into 1970s style texas chainsaw massacre type you know, horror and, and, and stuff. And, uh, it just makes her a really interesting read because he, he really brings to the forefront, this idea that, you know, the, the relationship between the movie and the audience and how the movie has to fit, you know, how, how a movie can come across totally different ways to different people. And I don't know, I just, that was, that's one of the reviews of many of his that just always stood out to me. I like that. Yeah, I, I like a movie review when they communicate the experience of seeing the movie, not just telling you like, well, what's on the screen or right, let's analyze right. this plot point or something. But yep. yeah, Pauline Kael used to do that a lot. She was a film reviewer that Ebert and many, many of today's reviewers admired a lot. Um, and I think she wrote for the, the New Yorker. And I yeah. can't, I can't didn't she hate Star Wars? She Wasn't didn't that, like, I mean, she was famously, uh, she yeah. panned movies that were critically acclaimed, like The Sound of Music. She wrote very oh, that one too. The Sound of Music. Okay. Because um, I know that outside of Ebert, I think she's kind of like the most celebrated film critic, critic. of, um, you she, know. Yeah, she might be. She may be up there. And um, her, her, she always would talk about the experience of seeing the movie. I mean, that she would, it was very personal to her and... Um, you know, she liked movies. Some of the classic movies she loved, like The Godfather Part Two. Um, but yeah, she didn't. That that's what she was kind of known for. I think. Like she has a book called "I Lost It at the Movies." Her books kind of would have suggestive titles about how movies <laughs> affected her. Or I see. Or uh, yeah. Anyway, <laughs> there's movies like that. Ebert did that. He one of his books was called "Awake in the Dark." You know, like uh, right. I think I've seen that movie yeah. theater in the dark, but. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think I think the first one of his that I bought was Your Movie Sucks. It's like <laughs> oh, a comp- yeah. the compilation of all of his nasty reviews, which is obviously just uh, like he 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 has a willingness to go some to places where you know, even even when I, you know, trash a movie, I I try to not trash it too brutally and I maybe just because I could never attain the heights that 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 Reber that the Ebert can get to, but, uh, okay. So, so I want to play a little, uh, a little blast from the past, a little flashback stuff here because because I basically I want you to fill in some gaps for me because I'm trying to recreate and kind of piece together. So, so my second year at Utah state 
going to write for the Statesman again. And I had been doing just kind of like humor columns and stuff like that, which was a lot of fun. I wanted to keep doing that. But then my second year is when I decided, oh, I think I want to start writing movie reviews. And that was when I met you because you were because you were the features editor, right? Right. I was the assistant features editor. Yeah. Okay. I remember there was there was you and now because I remember there was another features editor that you worked with. Yeah. And I remember Emily, I believe Emily. Yeah. And she married the other humor columnist eventually, right? Because there was me and there was one other guy. Right. And the two of them got married and we just became roommates. Yeah. So. Yeah, that's true. So. Yeah. Emily Holmes, she married Garrett Wheeler. So I think she's Emily Wheeler now. And they, yeah. Okay. They got married. Okay. Twins. Yeah. No, I, I just kind of had these, these vague memories of it. And then, but then I remember after a time you started writing movie reviews as well, right? Yes. Yeah. Okay. What do you, what do you remember about the, the movies from that year? Because I, and I'll, I'll let you go first, but I have some very specific memories. Okay. Of, the, the the cinematic offerings of the 2003-2004 season. Yes, me too. So one of the great things about being the assistant features editor is I could assign myself to watch a movie um, that looked interesting and not watch a movie that I didn't want to see. It wasn't like, right. you know, like Roger Ebert where you're going and seeing eight or ten movies a week or something. Um, well, it's not that many, but, you know, they see a lot of movies, the professional yeah, critics. Yeah, right. So I, I remember seeing Hidalgo, Vigo Mortensen okay. movie, wow. um, uh, about basically a horse race across the desert to, yeah, yeah. in Arabia, and Fifty First Dates, uh, okay. Lost in Translation, which is kind of the big critically acclaimed movie of that year, right, right. Um, of 2003, and Matrix Revolutions was another one. Okay. So I, I, I mean, I, yeah, I have some specific memories about a few of these. Um, I... I, it was funny, like I would tend to give, I, I wouldn't give a review that was too positive or that was too negative. And I think I was a little bit snobby. I was a little bit of a film snob, <laughs> you know, like I, I think I gave 50 First Dates a C or something like that. And even just thinking about the movie now, and I haven't seen it for many, many years, I probably like it more. I probably would like it more now if I went back and watched it, you know. Maybe. I don't know. Maybe I, not. <laughs> I haven't no, seen I do, it I think, well, I do years. think it's, I do think it's easier to enjoy a movie when you don't have the responsibility of analyzing it mm-hmm. or or making good or bad any kind of an argument about it right because right. because you're paying attention in a way that you're not in just kind of a casual viewing and and so I've you know this is something we've actually talked about on this podcast before is kind of this this gulf between not just between critics and fans but kind of between like critics and well just just trying to kind of understand what the relationship should be because it's not a matter of well I'm just going to say this about the movie because this is me I'm I'm still doing a service on behalf of an audience mm-hmm. and so so the the whole idea that there is a gulf between well the critics are snobs and the fans just want to have a good time there shouldn't be that kind of dissonance, right? right? We should kind of all be on the same page because in theory, I'm writing for somebody who's trying to decide whether to go see the movie. Exactly. Yeah, you're kind of representing the potential movie-going public, like representing yeah. the people. Like, are they going to spend their seven bucks or nine bucks or ten fifty or whatever it is now going to see a movie if maybe if they're not quite sure about it, but a good review could push them over the edge or a bad review can deter them from going. Yeah. Um, yeah. So yeah, you feel a responsibility, I think, with that. And 
It's true. Yeah. Well, it's funny because you you list off movies that I'm very familiar with. I don't think I actually reviewed any of those movies that year. So I, I wonder if, and this is this is where my memory is getting hazy, but I don't know if if that was because I I had chosen other ones, and so you were filling in gaps from from movies that I wasn't covering, or because is one thing I do. I mean, I have a very couple, like I said, a couple of very clear memories from that year, and one of which was realizing that uh, you know because I I. I think I was doing like one a week, right? I mean, I think I was basically just picking out one movie to cover each week. And and I realized very quickly that good movies don't come out every week and that I was writing reviews for genuinely trash movies all the time, you know, just because I had to go find something that was coming out that weekend to write about. And, you know, it could be too because we were doing it during the school year. And so, you know, the big summer blockbusters were kind of out of season for us. But yeah, I mean, I, think, I remember just seeing just these these movies that oh my gosh, I can't you know, and I I couldn't get a roommate to go with me, or I couldn't get a date, and so you know I'm going to these things by myself, and I'm watching you know Dickie Roberts, former child actor, and and some of these just yeah. just rough rough movies. Didn't did you but, see uh, any that were? I mean, what was like your favorite? Do you remember having a great movie that you're like, I'm so glad I got to go review that and see you that? know. Yes and no, because so one of the ones that stood out the most from that year, and I remember being completely elated at the time and just overjoyed because unlike so many of the other very forgettable, you know, or just bad movies that I was covering to kind of fill space, um, a Coen Brothers movie finally came along and it was uh, Intolerable Cruelty. And, And I remember just watching the beginning of that movie and just feeling overjoyed again, just because, oh, now here's here's a movie where they're trying and they're, you know, this it's witty and it's clever and it's fun and there's these zany, you know, because I love raising Arizona and, uh, you know, um, Hudsucker Proxy and, and all these, uh, you know, such a such a affection for the Coen Brothers stuff that that watching one of their movies, which, and this, this is why I say no, is because in time we kind of realize, yeah, Intolerable Cruelty, not one of their best. You know, not I wouldn't say it was a bad movie, but it definitely wasn't, you know, one of their one of their top offerings. But even so, by comparison to what everything else that was coming out, holy cow, what a breath of fresh air it was to just to, to, to have the Coen brothers writing. Just bringing something to life that was that was a lot of fun. That was yeah, that was a good one. I remember that. It's funny because I I'm a big fan of the Coen brothers and I, I, I love like No Country for Old Men and Fargo uh-huh. and some of these ones. And I hadn't thought about the movie until the other day, like a week ago, one of my friends, uh, Dave Ackerman, mentioned that movie to me. Oh, yeah. Because we had talked about what my, you know, my profession is. And so he threw that. And I'm like, oh, my gosh, I haven't thought about that yeah, movie that's in right. 10 years. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. And so and then the other one, the other one that I remember the best, and, and this this was another kind of a fun memory. Um, I remember and I can't remember why. But there was a day, you know, where just it, you, you're just in a bad mood, right? It's just kind of one of these days where nothing's breaking your way. Everything is irritating you. Everyone is irritating you. And I was just kind of in this this crabby, pissy mood. And I had to go see a movie, right? Because I had to go write a review for something. And I found um, that weekend uh, The Rundown 
had come out, mm. the one with the rock. You remember mm. that one? Yeah, I remember that. Yeah, and so so I was like, okay, this 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 seems like it'll this will work. So I go see this movie, and this is like what 85, 90 minutes of the rock just beating on people, like throwing <laughs> people through walls and off cliffs and into trees, and is just like peak early phase Dwayne Johnson, you know, action that like totally shallow, nothing, you know, no, no real plot, no real characterization, just this, this is another movie that's like Dwayne Johnson beating on people. And (laughs) it was perfect because it was, it was exactly what I need. It was, there was this bizarre cathartic experience because I was in such a bad mood. And so watching the rock just beat up the bad guys for 90 minutes could not have been a better match for what I needed at that moment. That's funny. So did you give it an A? I'm I'm try I'm sure I gave it a positive review. Yeah. I'm, I'm sure I did. Um, I don't know that back then I had my current problem, which is that everything seems to be two and a half stars out of four. Right. right? Like I think I was probably a little bit more, you know, I, I hadn't I hadn't got to that point where I could find the positives and negatives in everything, and so never felt good about being, you know, too far to one side or the other of the spectrum. But, uh, but that, that was a good one. That was a good one. There were, I mean, there were good movies that came out that year, but there were, like I said, just to kind of fill the space, it seemed like there were a lot of movies that, wow, like I would never bother with this Mm -hmm. in, in any other circumstance. And, and that really is something that, that is kind of carried over, you know, professionally is that, you know, there are a lot of movies that you realize that, wow, you, you know, if, if I was not being paid to do this, good grief. <laughs> well, I, I think you told me once that you kind of start with a, a, a two and a half star rating. Like you walk in, the movie's two and a half stars. If it's really bad, it's going to go lower than that. If it exceeds expectations, mm-hmm. maybe it's going to get higher. Yeah. But that's kind of like the baseline. I, I like it when... I do read a review that is just completely glowing or like completely negative. You know, when I, when I, yeah. when I tend to do this too much in my own reviews, some, I, I did this, I know at the Statesman where it was like kind of middling, like, well, I want to say some good about it. I want to say some bad. I'm trying to be thorough, but do I really tell people by the end of the review, whether I liked the movie or not, you know, I yeah. want them to know that. And I don't think it was always clear in my reviews. Um, yeah, well, and it's, I mean, after doing this for years and years, I still feel like I'm starting to figure out what to do and what not to do. I mean, even kind of like you say with the star rating and that, that was Steve sales was, was the one who suggested the, the two and a half star starting point for mm-hmm. me. And which just like you say, I think is a really great idea. Um, it took me a few years to kind of figure out that, all right, well, I'm going to give something three stars if it's just a good, solid movie. Like, no complaints, nothing, you know, world-beating, nothing incredible, just good, solid. I'm recommending this movie. This is a good movie. Lowercase g, uh, three stars, right? Mm -hmm. Two and a half means it's got some issues, but it has enough positives that I still need to give credit for that as well. Like, anything below two and a half stars, that's where we're starting to get in kind of problem territory. Um, Three and a half stars means... This has impressed me. Like some, something, something is going beyond the good, you know, lowercase g, and and this is this is fun. Like this is turning into something that is is caught, caught my attention. And then of course, you know, the four stars is just like, wow, like that just you know 
Yeah. I, I, that, that was really incredible. It's, it's not a matter of, it's not even a matter of this has no errors so much as just what is there is so impressive, right? Yeah. Like if there are no obvious errors, it could be like a three-star movie. It just, it's there. It's fine. It doesn't really, it's good. I recommend it, but it's not the kind of thing I'm going to remember the rest of my life, you know, mm-hmm. three, three and a half and four stars is getting, it, it's kind of, it's really achieving something. Yeah. Some people are give them out. I mean, Ebert, he gave out a lot of four-star reviews. One of the criticisms of Ebert is he just loves He's such a big softy. Too many movies. <laughs> even even the Your Movie Sucks or I Hated, Hated, Hated This Movie from his books, those were not very often. Maybe every few months, you know, there'd be a turkey yeah. zero stars uh, mm-hmm. that he could just brutalize. <laughs> but, in, um, but yeah, he gave a lot of four-star movies, more than just about any other critic. And so... Yeah, I, I mean, they're they're not they're not very often. But it, when you think about it, yeah, movies. I don't know how many come out a year now. Maybe six hundred, seven hundred. How many of them really should be four star movies? You know? Yeah, no, it should be. You know, and here again, this is where I I kind of think about my relationship and my responsibility to my audience because, you know, you have to find some way to differentiate the movies that are just fine, that are entertaining, that are good. Versus the ones that, okay, well, if you're only going to go see a couple movies a year, this is what you really need to go see. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that's that's something I, I try to think about a lot. Now, I want to get into your thoughts a little bit more, though, because um, as we were talking about having you come on, uh, you, you indicated that you haven't been watching a lot of, like, brand new movies. And, and so I don't know if this is the reason, but I thought this would be something for you to comment on. How do you feel about going to the movies right now? Oh, I, I love it. I, I haven't very recently gone, but I I mean, I was in, I, I saw Tenet as soon as I could last year when I, I came out. I think it was in July. Um, uh, you know, I, I like going to the movies. I still like it, even though I know of all the complaints, I've read them multiple times about how they're getting to be too expensive and, mm-hmm. you know, everybody can have their own home theater systems that are just as good as you know being in a movie now it seems like and everything's on streaming you know all, all we're having this problem right now with all the um the movie theaters not being able to make money because the studios are just dealing with all the streaming platforms and so that's kind yeah. of interesting because i i hope we don't lose movie theaters um i love the experience of being in a movie theater for a memorable movie especially like an all-time great yeah um, yeah yeah no, and, and well, you, you bring up streaming, and so maybe it's kind of a a cheeky segue. You you, you did mention uh, that there was a movie that you particularly enjoyed uh, that's come out in the last year that I I couldn't get through. So let's oh yeah, let's talk about let's talk about because uh, this is streaming on Amazon Prime, right? Was this? Uh, I think it was Amazon Prime. Yeah. You're yeah. talking about the the vast of night, right? Yes, yes, uh, yeah. So tell, so so give me your sales pitch. Yeah, let me try to convince you. I um, so here's one a couple of reasons why I think it's kind of a special experience for me. I believe this came out during the pandemic, and so we're all we're all just starting to say, well, the only way we can watch a movie now anyway is through is just sitting at home. Mm-hmm. Um, I think was it a 2020 release? Probably, yeah, it came out last year. Yeah, it was early I, I want to say I want to say back half of last year. Right. Um, okay. Yeah. 
And direct director prime, yeah. Yes, and I remember sitting there, and I didn't really plan to do this, but I noticed, okay, yeah, it's PG, and my son Jameson is sitting there with me, and we probably start it at around 7.30 or 8, um, kind of late for him, maybe it was closer to 7, and he sat and watched the whole thing with me, my 8-year-old son, and was engrossed, and I, it wasn't the kind of movie that I thought a kid would really enjoy. You know, like, it wasn't a fast-paced action movie, didn't have recognizable characters in it um mm -hmm. no actors or actresses that anybody would really know it's a small movie i mean it was made on like a seven hundred thousand dollar budget by a first-time filmmaker but it's such a slow burn a suspenseful movie about you know whether or not something supernatural happens whether or not there's really aliens coming to this small town in i think it's in new mexico and um i just loved how it builds how how it doesn't it's a very patient movie and so i'm curious for you like what uh what, how, why it was why you weren't able to get through it what i ran into was and you you, you mentioned that there was a uh a pretty lengthy you know unbroken tracking at the beginning of the, yeah, yeah yeah at the beginning of the movie which is fine i mean you see that kind of stuff all the time i have nothing against that i just kind of took an instant dislike to this central character who just would not shut up for the first 20 minutes of the movie as he's walking around the gymnasium and out and back into, you know, up and <laughs> yeah. down the halls and across the, you know, the playground or whatever it was, just talking, 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 talking. And it didn't really seem to be about anything. It uh -huh. just, it kind of seemed to be kind of showy. And I don't know if I was just in the wrong mood for it or if it because, you know, whatever it was. But after, like I said, about after like 10, 15 minutes, I just kind of realized I have no idea what on earth he's talking about. I'm not paying attention. To, I, I can't even follow what's going on. I don't know that anything is going on. I'm moving on to the next thing. Nope. Sorry. <laughs> yeah. I could see not being moved for it. Let me see if I could explain why I think that. So that character you're talking about, he's, he's just this whip smart, clever, talkative, maybe a little bit cocky guy who's, who's, you know, running a radio station. And, and the movie is basically from the point of view of these kids. These, yeah. these kids that are trying to figure out where these sounds are coming from. And he is, and yeah, he does a lot of talking at the beginning of the movie. But I promise as the movie goes on, he kind of shuts up a little bit and learns to listen more. Okay. Um, and there's this really astonishing scene where a character that you never see is being interviewed on a radio. Not unlike a podcast, I guess, but there's, hey. but it's, it's in, it takes place in the 1950s. So well before podcasting. Um, yeah. and, and this character is describing what he believes was a supernatural event. And, and it's just, you see these two, this, the guy and the girl kind of interviewing this, this character and you see the microphone, you never see the character and it is so compelling and it has, it has a lot of pauses, but they're, they're used effectively. Yeah. And the way that he's telling the story, I mean, it's. It's almost like, you know, the show don't tell thing you hear about. Okay, yeah, right. You know, in writing and good writing and the same good storytelling, you know, verbal, oral storytelling. Um, and, and that's one of the things I love because when you, build, when you make a movie on a small budget, you're not going to be able to afford any special effects really at all. Hardly any. And, yeah. But it shows that you can make an effective sci-fi movie without special effects. It's not easy to do. And I'm sure it's, it, there's many people that try and it just doesn't work. It becomes too hokey or too corny. Um, but I, this movie, it really worked for me. Um, and it's because of scenes like that. 
and, and okay. it's it's a great yeah the character he's very talkative i can see how it'd be annoying the other thing that's a little problematic is there's a lot of 50s slang that's i guess supposed to be used oh yeah and and there's time there are times where characters say things and i don't quite know what they mean it must be some yeah something i just we don't say anymore you know you can figure it out from context mostly those, but. those blasted period pieces why can't, just, why can't they just talk right why can't they talk right like we do yeah okay okay well so we we have one one key question that uh that every every guest and everybody who every every co-host everybody who participates on this podcast is going to answer and so Mark, what are your three picks? What are your three movies? If somebody did not know you and and you wanted to give them three movies that would kind of embody what you what you love about movies, you know, kind of who you are as a person, you know, what uh I mean it's your three favorite movies, right? Go ahead. What do you got? Yeah, and so what I decided to do is I, I wanted since I want to teach you about my and teach the audience about about me through these movies. I didn't <laughs> pick my three favorite movies. They're definitely okay. up there. Um, one of the reasons I didn't pick one is because it was already picked by Danny, and I would just say a lot of the same things that she said. But life that's is right. Life is beautiful is probably my favorite movie. So for for the for the purposes of this list, that's going to be sort of my first honorable mention is life is beautiful uh-huh, gotcha gotcha um it's it's an amazing movie i mean i'll just talk about it for a minute i saw it right after i got back from my mission and so it was in 1999 it came out in 98 and um i, I just i don't know it connected with me on so many different levels you know and and i wasn't even a parent then now i see the movie a little differently because it's about a father i can imagine trying yeah to right, protect right. A boy um and having to lie to him to basically to save his life uh, and then it's about sacrifice. It's kind of two movies in one. You know, the first half is really kind of a romantic yeah. comedy, and the second half is in a concentration camp, essentially. Yeah. Um, and and it has a lot of comedy. People think it's a comedy about the Holocaust. Some some people do when they try to criticize it, but it's really not. Um, it, right. You know, I think you described it earlier how it's more of a, uh, I think a drama that has comedic elements. Um, but it's not. It doesn't. It doesn't make light of the Holocaust, in, in my view. And it's the kind of. It, it's funny because the the guy Roberto Benigni, he it's like the perfect role for him. He seems like the kind of guy that would try to. Well, like for example, I, Roger Ebert does tell a story about how he is uh, in an airport. A true story where Roberto Benigni's in an airport trying to cheer up a group of weary travelers just by doing funny comic bits for him. You know, like. Mm. Just, that just seems like the kind of person he is like Guido, which is the character in the movie. It's like, Hey, this is very believable. Like is this guy playing himself, you know? Yeah. Um, right. So yeah, that's the movie that I love, but let me tell you about my, um, yeah. Okay. So first one is a movie that came out in 1984. And, uh, I saw this when I was little, every time we would drive from Cache Valley to my grandparents' house in Rose Park, there was a period of time where I think I watched this movie every single visit to grandma's house and it's called the never ending story. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, and it's, and I don't know, like I, it's funny. I was just watching it tonight with the kids the first time I ever showed it to them and we didn't quite finish it, but we watched enough of it to, to get their reactions. And my, I have a nine year old, eight year old, six year old, 
they were all watching it. They were all like, they weren't acting bored, even though the, the effects are not great. <laughs> yeah, right. it might have been a little hard to follow for him. And it's a little scary, you know, for younger kids. Uh, well, I remember, isn't that the movie where the, the horse like sinks into the swamp? Exactly. That yeah, is a traumatic scene. Yeah, right, right. Um, but a yeah. spoiler alert for anybody who hasn't watched Neverending Story. Which yeah, is it now wouldn't 40 be too big old. a spoiler alert because it happens near the beginning <laughs> in the first half of the movie. But I mean, one but of the things that I just I love about it is, as a kid, as a little boy, and I was a big reader. It's about a kid who's reading a book that sort of it starts to blur fiction from reality what he's reading in the book and then he somehow getting a little bit involved in the story and the characters in the story being able to hear him a little bit and i don't want to spoil it too much but that was so magical to watch as a kid um yeah to see like oh my gosh that this is you know what is real could this kind of stuff really happen i mean in my little you know eight seven eight year old mind i'm probably actually thinking oh is that a possibility like could movie you know books come to life or could I become part of a book? And, yeah. and the movie portrays that excellently um, for, uh, you know, and I don't, I don't know if it was a big budget type movie, but it's, and maybe it was, but, you know, even watching it now, it's definitely 1984 style special effects. Right. Well, uh, and I, 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 I laughed when you, when you first mentioned it, not, not because I'm laughing at never ending story, but because I, just finished rewatching season three of, well, all three seasons of Stranger Things. Oh, and, yeah. You know, of course, uh, if, if you, if you watch that show, you know that there's a, a pretty key moment where they use the, the theme to never ending story. And it's, yeah. it's a great, it's a great little moment. It so. is. It's a little homage. <laughs> that whole series is an homage to eighties films. Like oh, it, it is. It 80s is. 80s thrillers, suspense, could, action movies. Um, we could have a very lengthy conversation on just the, on, on that alone. Yeah, we could. And, I mean, this movie, there's there's a great scene just where there's this young warrior boy named Atreyu who has to basically go save the universe in, in this book from something called the nothing, which is sort of this inexplicable force that's causing everything in the world to disappear. And um, so anyway, right when he gets assigned with this task, he's riding his horse, Artax, across the, the plains, like, and, and it shows him riding really, really fast and is playing this just soaring, triumphant score this 80s sort of synth pop score that's really cool sounding. And you're like, wow, does it get any better than this? And then later in the movie, this same character is writing what is called a luck dragon named Falcor. It's sort of this dog-like creature that flies. Oh, right, right. And and it's the same music. It's like, oh, yeah, it does get better. Like, I mean, this <laughs> this movie builds, the, you know, those kind of scenes. Um And uh, so, yeah, that's, that's a movie that I don't – I guess I don't know how that would describe me. I guess – I, I'm sure it had a huge effect on me. I tried to estimate one time how many times I've seen the movie just based on like how many times did we go to my grandparents' house when I was a, you know, elementary school kid. And uh-huh. I know that I had to watch the movie every time. So I think it was probably 60 or 70 times. Wow. I'm sure it's, I'm sure I've seen that movie more than any other movie. Like, well, that, that, I think that earns it a place on your list for sure. Yeah. I have, and it's funny because out of all the movie posters in my basement, I don't have that one. And I'm like, I need to get that. I really well, there should. There you go. There but, you go. Yeah. That's on there. <laughs> um, another one is, well, I'm wearing the shirt. Jurassic Park. Okay. Yeah. Very I, had, good. I, I just had to go with that one. Uh, when I was about 16 years old, my dad said, 
you want to go see this movie, Jurassic Park? And, out, and by then I was already, you know, a, a budding cinephile and I knew who Steven Spielberg was. And I had, I had already started reading Michael Crichton books. And I don't remember for sure if I'd read that book before or after seeing the movie. I think I had already read it. But anyway, so we, we you know, I drove from uh, River Heights, uh, where I lived near Logan, down to the Cinema 3 in Logan. I, I rode on my bike to meet my dad. So he worked not cool. too far from there. And I rode my bike and I was late. So I met him there. We go into the movie late and it had already started. And the characters are on the screen looking at this rock, this orange rock with the insect in it, the, the mosquito. So yeah. yeah. That, so I missed the very first scene of the movie, but then I get to where you start seeing where they're going to get the DNA or it had already happened by then to, um, to, uh, you know, uh, de-extinction is what we call it now but you know to create the dinosaurs yeah. to grow the dinosaurs right and um and it was just oh man it was the perfect movie and sometimes i think movies have an effect on us because it's, we watch them at the absolute perfect age for that kind of a movie yeah and for yeah. me like just like i think never ending story was probably that way for me in 1984 85 86 i think jurassic park was that way for me in 1993 uh -huh. you know a 16 year old teenage boy seeing dinosaurs come to life and, and it's seamless special effects. I mean, he uses both yeah. animatronics and CG mm -hmm. in a really good way. No, and it, it holds up. That's just a good, scary movie. And, oh, and, it and is. I remember, I remember after I had seen it a couple times, I remember going to the theater like a third or fourth time. And because I already kind of knew when everything was coming, I had noticed that there was a, there was a woman sitting down the aisle from me who seemed to be really reacting quite a bit to the scares. Like she would actually kind of jump out of her seat. And so after a while, when I knew something was coming, rather than watch the movie, I would just turn and just like look down the aisle and sure enough, right on cue, she would just jump out of her seat. Yeah. And it was just so funny to watch her reaction because like if you if you you know it's it's a scary movie i mean that's that's one of the best it things is. about it yeah i mean you kind of forget it it's probably a horror movie technically i don't know yeah i mean I, I i'm not a huge fan of horror movies so i don't know if i it's i i would really admit that it is but maybe it is i haven't really looked up what genre it's in or category it's in it's definitely a, a thriller and um yeah it, it, the characters are basically in peril the whole movie and many yeah some of them yeah. die so um, a, a few things that I liked about it is that it's not always the dinosaurs that are they're putting people in danger too, right? Like there are scenes where an electric fence is a, perhaps about to shock, you know, or electrocute some people. Yeah, and, and yeah. you know, some characters on in the movie know that it's going to be turned on, but the characters that don't know that it's going to be that the fence is going to be turned on are like basically touching it. And then mm -hmm. there's the part with the Jeep falling through the tree where they're trying to avoid this falling Jeep while they're climbing down a tree. And, um, and you know, that has really nothing to do with the dinosaurs. So it's not even just dinosaurs, but Spielberg has cooked up other ways that, you know, people are in danger. Um, and so I, I really liked it. And, you know, it's actually not as dark as the book. There, there are more oh, characters. Oh, no, no. Yeah, the, the, book, the, the book movie would be... is, is fun. I know it's scary, yeah. and I, I admit that that lady, I mean, I don't blame her for jumping. And, <laughs> oh, you know, no, I no. was the same way, but the book is darker. There, there are more characters that you come to know and love in the, in the movie that are 
especially one that I'm thinking of in particular that's killed off in the book um, in a pretty gruesome way. And uh, so, but yeah, that I just, oh, it was, it was excellent. It was so good. Well, well, according to the all knowing website, IMDB, okay. uh, Jurassic Park is an action adventure sci-fi. Oh, so, so it, it, it does okay. not, it does not categorize it. Um, I don't know that I agree. I mean, I think that if you can say action and adventure and sci-fi, you can also say horror in the case yeah. of this movie because yeah. it is a scary movie. So <laughs> it's so pretty scary, I, you know. I mean, it's you, and a lot of times those kids are in danger. I mean, you got the the boy and the girl that are, yeah, they you know they have a lot of things happen to them where they're they're all, they almost die, and um, <laughs> yeah, I, I but I just loved it and it was fun to try to name the dinosaurs too, like. The spitting dinosaur that's with uh, Newman, <laughs> with Nedrick, yeah, with, with Newman. That's um, right. That the was that was. I, I remember the Gallimimus running through the field that looked very realistic. Um, there's a bunch of dinosaurs. You really only see them that one time. They're just running through a field, and and uh, you know, Doctor Grant, Doctor Sadler, start trying to run away from them, and they're running all around them. And those that just was like. I'm, you know, we're we're sitting there in, in the movie theater in '93, just thinking, how do they do this? Like, how did yeah. how did this happen? Um, yeah, right. And and I don't mind that. Like, I, I I like getting lost in a movie, you know, as much as the next person. But I also like trying to figure out how they do things, or just you know, marveling at at the at the special effects while I'm watching a movie. Right. And yeah. Right. It was great. They did such a such an awesome job in that movie. Um, it was funny too because that year. I'm talking about how I probably am less of a film snob than I used to be. Schindler's List came out the same year. That's so right. Spielberg had one heck of a year in '93. <laughs> it was it was a good year for him. Yeah, I mean it compares to probably the uh, Victor Fleming in 1939 with The Wizard of Oz and uh, Gone with the Wind. You know, oh, like God. you think about just all-time heavyweight movies. He, I mean, and they're totally different. Like Jurassic Park and Schindler's oh, yeah. List almost couldn't be more different. Yeah, uh, but when you think about which movies are rewatchable or which movies do I want to watch again, yeah, I've seen Schindler's List, Twelve Years a Slave. I mean, those are like great mm-hmm. movies you just only want to see once, in, you know, in right. my opinion. Right. Um, but Jurassic Park, I'll 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 always watch that. So no, very nice, very nice. Okay, so pressure's on. All right, time to deliver number three. What do you got? Okay, number three. I, I had to pick a newer movie and uh, another theater experience. Like you know, like Jurassic Park, and it came out in 2019. Um, and I, I've discovered a couple of things about myself because of a lot of my favorite movies fall into the same genre. It's essentially a war movie, or it takes place during war, during World War okay. II, and it's about a child, or from the point of view of a child. And then it mm-hmm. also has elements of comedy and drama, and okay. it's Jojo Rabbit. Oh, bless you, sir. <laughs> that was my favorite movie of 2019 by far. Uh, me too. Me I, too. I, I just loved it. I mean, I, I, I really liked The Farewell. I liked Marriage Story, Toy Story 4. I remember that was a pretty good year. and I had It was a good year. It I was liked. a good year. It was a yeah. fun year. and But for me, um, I mean, that was just, that was by far my favorite movie. I remember being in the theater and having the experience of laughing and then, even just being emotional at a, at a scene where a character is is um, pushing Jojo Rabbit away, uh, the Sam Rockwell character, 
and yeah try, kind of right. being mean to him to get him to get away but he was also saving his life by doing it and yeah yeah that um, was a great moment and then oh there's just so many wonderful moments in that movie like i think the scarlett johansson character is is kind of ties it all together um yeah because she's she's duplicitous but in a good way kind of like i i guess guido in life is beautiful maybe um she's a lot more subtle about it in the uh -huh. things that she tells her son but even just some of the filmmaking choices there there's a scene where he he like he ties her shoes for her or where she's walking along sort of on a cement kind of abutment and he's walking below it and so his, her shoes are basically at eye level for Jojo Rabbit yeah yeah and, and they're talking you know and then there's a movie later where it's a very heartbreaking scene where her shoes are at eye level just dangling there um, yeah and he just kind of hugs them and I just I thought Oh, it was great. It was such a good movie. Um, Yorgi, his friend. Uh, do you remember that kid? He stole oh, the show. Yeah. Every oh, yeah. line was just hilarious. No, he was he was the secret MVP. You know, like every time he showed up. Oh yeah. It was just it was pure comedy gold. Oh yeah. And just just adorable. I mean, not just funny, but like. Yeah, adorable. You like just, you want to give just, him a hug, but he had right. The, the you best just wanted lines. to hug everybody in this movie. And I loved even the songs that they did. The German oh, yeah. versions of "I Want to Hold Your Hand" by the Beatles and "Heroes" yeah. by David Bowie. Yep. Oh um, yeah, kind of bookending the movie. Yeah, uh, right, right. And uh, yeah, it's just uh, I, I like it too because I mean, if you think, oh, I'm going to make a movie about a little ten-year-old boy who loves being part of the Hitler Youth and his best friend is imaginary Hitler, you're instantly you 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 probably are like, whoa, how's that going to work? Like, is is yeah, you know, kind of like life is beautiful. Maybe you're just thinking that right, that doesn't right. sound appealing, or that why would I want to see that? You know, because because mm -hmm. of the Nazis. But then the way that he pulls it off, and sort of the transformation that JoJo goes through in the movie, it just it fits. It's about basic human nature and and the struggles and and the weaknesses and the foibles that we have, and and the journeys that we take, and makes this stuff universal. I, and I think, too, like, because it's a 10-year-old boy that's the main character, the protagonist, we identify with him, he would be most likely of anyone to believe all of those hilariously shocking, preposterous, anti-Semitic tropes. Yeah. You know, like, yeah. in the movie, you learn about all these crazy things that they're, they're apparently some Nazis believe about Jews and teach to others and to younger Jews. Right, right. To, to you know, to, to younger Nazis, younger Germans, and... And and they're and and you're laughing in the movie, but then you're probably thinking, well, maybe some people really believe that, or of course a ten year old would believe that, and of course, so therefore he wants to be part of the Hitler Youth, and he wants to be part of a group that's basically like a glorified Boy Scout troop or something. Yeah. Oh yeah. Um, but you know, it's not that he's he has hatred in his heart. You know, everything is no, justified it, in his mind. No, and that's well, that's what makes him sympathetic. Is yeah. that he's a character. He's just he's a kid who's just trying to find his place. You know, he just he wants to be a part of something, and 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 bless his heart, he's just in a situation where the thing to be a part of is this horrible, awful thing, and he's got to go through this, you know, this pretty stark, traumatic journey to to figure out. Okay, you know, maybe this isn't what I want to be a part of. <laughs> yeah, you know? no, he does, and. Yeah, overall, it's just it's a sweet movie. I mean, it has a little a little bit of a satirical, you know, edge to it, but it just, it made me laugh and cry. I just, I just have I love those movies. I kind of have a soft spot for them. The Royal Tenenbaums yeah. is like that for me. 
mm-hmm. Forrest Gump mm-hmm. was one of those movies, you know, plenty of laughs, but also like a, like a kind of a um, dramatic heart to it or a serious heart somewhere in there. And so, yeah, that, that's, that's on there. Very nice. Very nice. Well, I, not, not that it's very important, but I, I fully approve of your list. <laughs> well, that's, that was a, that was a good one. Yeah. I, I, knew, some... I thought I kind of, I, 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 I surprised you with the never ending story. Um, it's just one, it's a movie that I hadn't seen actually until tonight. I hadn't seen it in many, many, many years. You oh, know? wow. Yeah. I, I, I just haven't seen it in a long time, but because it was such a childhood favorite for me and now I'm kind of introducing it to my kids, I figured it had to be on there. Um, but yeah, I mean, I have a few honorable mentions if we have a, a minute. Yeah. So I mentioned Life is Beautiful. That's that's always up there. I love it. Um, and there's, uh, you know, like we said, there's a little some similarities, I think, between that and, uh, and Jojo Rabbit. Oh, um, yeah. Dumb and Dumber is probably my <laughs> All favorite. All right, that's it. This interview's over. I know, I know. Just let me finish. Come on, I, come on. I, I saw that as a as a seventeen, I think a seventeen year old boy. I didn't go to the theater, but I rented it, and I just had never. I don't think I remember laughing that hard in my life. And I was even sitting there watching it alone. It wasn't like I was. It was a communal experience with a bunch of other teenagers. I was sitting there on my floor watching it alone, and just it was. I don't know. Jim Carrey in the nineties was was it for me. He, he was, there, there was no way I wasn't Oh, that explains so much. If that I wasn't watching a Jim Carrey movie in the 90s. Um, I do, I, I do have to give credit. There, there are a couple of lines in that movie that I still, that still make me laugh. Unfortunately, yeah. they're, even, even in our podcast format, I don't know if they'd be appropriate to share. <laughs> There's a lot of great lines in that movie. Um, Amadeus is another movie I love. Oh, it's yeah. It's funny to go oh, from yeah. Dumb and Dumber to Amadeus, but that's how it goes. <laughs> Um, another one that was, it's always near the top of my list, kind of introduced me to classical music in a way that just made it stick and made me always want to play Mozart and Beethoven and the, you know, those, uh, composers, uh, from yeah. the 1700s, um, the Godfather that's sure that's up there. That's a, that's basically a yearly watch for me. And sometimes I'll watch the whole trilogy, even the third one. Even the third one, <laughs> and then uh, the Back to the Future. Oh yeah, uh, yeah. classic. Love it. Um, Raiders of the Lost Ark. We talked about. Yeah, and yep. then a few of the newer ones. You know, if if we ever get a chance. But like the Father is, was my favorite movie of last year. Okay. Um, haven't seen a lot to really make a good list from twenty twenty twenty, but that's you know I didn't see a movie I enjoyed more than that. Um. And I liked eighth grade a lot. Came out about yeah four, three or four years ago. Since we're technically the Utah Film Pod, uh, we haven't done this in a couple of weeks, but we've been trying to do a thing where we kind of feature at least one movie with with a Utah connection, whether it's filmed in Utah, about Utah, or just has has any kind of illusion. So so since you're listing since you're listing some some bonus uh, some bonus choices, do you have a favorite? Utah related movie that that has any kind of a connection that might uh, that might qualify. Can you think of any of those? Oh, I'd have to think about that. Um, now, if we're going back into more obscure, just weird titles, um, have you ever seen Reuben and Ed? 
Oh yeah, we've talked about Ruben and Ed on the podcast. Okay, of course. I, nope that's that is one of the signature Utah movies, as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, that's a weird one. My friend Mike Jones, who has introduced me to a lot of interesting films, he was the one that that introduced Ruben and Ed to me, and that was funny. It was it was such a weird, just funny, quirky, um, unique movie. And I, I think the filmmaker, if I remember right, that was the only movie he made, and you could like contact him directly and talk about order it i can't remember i'd have to talk to mike yeah but... he's he's done a couple other movies trent oh, harris oh what's um, his name he, he had trent harris trent harris he's okay. he has done a couple other other movies but like you say you can also like contact him directly about getting a copy of his movies yeah um like he's he has a website that doesn't look like it's been updated in a very long time uh but uh i actually picked up a copy of reuben and ed at the tower theater they they actually had uh, apparently at least one for sale. And I remember swinging by there with my realtor one day several years ago and asking him to wait in the car while I ran inside to see if I could get a copy of Ruben and Ed. Oh, that's funny. Oh, yeah, you're right. He's got... So according to Wiki, he has six movies. Ruben and Ed was his first one. But I haven't I haven't seen any of the others that are listed. Yeah, I've, I've heard of Plan 10 from Outer Space. I have not watched it. Um, I know he's done a couple of other things, but really Ruben and Ed is the one that I know. And I think the only one I've seen, but, uh, that, that reminds me, speaking of plan 10, I, one time, uh, my a buddy and I watched the, what was supposed to be the worst movie of all time and the best movie of all time in the same night. I don't oh, know nice. what kind of sick experiment we were trying to do, <laughs> but we watched Citizen Kane and plan nine from outer space. <laughs> <laughs> That is brilliant. Yeah. That, you know, <laughs> wow. You know, maybe we ought to, because I'm thinking, because we're going to have you, we're going to have you come back. And, <laughs> yeah. We, should talk, we have a lot more, more we could talk we, about. There's, there's a lot more. I, and maybe, maybe we'll have to replicate that with, you know, a couple of different choices or something just to, right. You know, yeah. That, there's some, there's some potential there. That, that would be funny. There. Yeah. I, it reminds me, I had another friend that he and he and his friend rented, um, natural born killers and a goofy movie oh god <laughs> so that's a weird combo um <laughs> i don't know how they go together they don't that's the point they don't that's they the don't idea together. right that is great i love that mark i am so grateful that uh, that you came on to be a guest on the podcast it has been great having you and great catching up as it always is yeah i appreciate being on here this was a blast Oh, well, it's been good to have you, Mark. Thanks so much, man. All right. Thanks. Well, that's going to do it for episode eight of the Utah Film Pod. I'd like to thank Mark LaRocco once again for coming on as a guest. And thank you for taking the time to listen to the podcast. And definitely make sure to give us some feedback if you have any thoughts or anything that you'd like to see us talk about in future episodes. And until then, take care of yourself and have a great day. 